Welcome to Changing Conversations with Billy Burke and me, Sarah Philp. This is a podcast creating space for conversations with, for and by educators. Conversation is one of the oldest ways to nurture the conditions for growth and improvement. When we talk about what matters, we come alive and conversation has the power to guide us into new and different actions offering the potential for great things. We bring you conversations that have resonance both now and in the future. With the help of guests and the odd solo episode, we explore leadership, learning and well-being. We have the conversations we know you want to listen to. It's always a pleasure to reconnect with Simon and in this episode we reflect on his recent visit to Scotland and what he noticed while he was here. He suggests three areas that we might want to consider. Precision, alignment and coherence and sustainability. And this point, this last point, led us into a dialogue about the pruning principle, which I'm sure you're going to enjoy. Simon, it's really good to see you again. How have you been since the last time we chatted? Which is quite a while ago, I think. <laughs> it has been, Sarah. Great to be back. Uh, going really well. Family's thriving. And in between our last conversations, I even made my way to Scotland in person. So lots to catch up on. Good, good. And I think that was um, just a couple of months ago, if I'm correct as well. Yeah, no, just uh, end of September. I was there early October. So uh, yeah, look forward to debriefing that and other parts of my research and work uh, that'd be good to talk about. Great. Um, And one of the reasons uh, we were keen to reconnect with you again is one of the episodes we recorded with you, I think it was the first one around sustainable improvement, has been consistently our most listened to episode and continues to it continues to grow and I suppose it made us curious um, about why that might be why it was so popular why that in particular resonated with with people um, and I suppose you know I would have some ideas and listeners would have some ideas but I just wonder from your perspective what do you what do you think is about that that was so um, captivating for people that idea of sustainable improvement well you know you never know what mm-hmm. ideas are going to land at certain points it's funny Sarah this is not you know necessarily a key frame or topic that I often share in keynotes and workshops it was just something that emerged in our conversation yeah. but I think there is a sense coming out of COVID and people are saying the way we're improving isn't working mm-hmm. And they want to return to a more human lens in, of course, we want our schools to keep getting better. And of course, we're nowhere near the limits of how good we could be. But the way we've gone about it, and particularly in the post-crisis part of COVID phase, where we had a pause, where everything was held for a moment, Mm -hmm. and then we got everything back and a whole bunch of additional things. And Mm -hmm. I think people are looking at each other saying, I know we can get better, and I know we can make progress. But right now, I just feel like I'm jumping from one thing to another. And perhaps I spend most of my time emailing, meeting and managing the work and not feeling like I'm actually progressing anything. Um, I had one leader here say to me, Simon, I think um, that, uh, well, he said, I'm flat out. I feel really exhausted and I don't know whether I've achieved anything this week. And I think that's where a lot of people are feeling. So the idea of sustainability says, number one, hey, let's not do things unless we think that they can 
play out in the long-term future of our schools and our local authorities and our regional improvement collaboratives. Let's have the benchmark of, let's think uh, in decades, uh, not in days. Mm. And then I think secondly, let's go about it in such a way that doesn't burn us out in the process. Uh, let's go about it at a natural cadence with a regular rhythm and we look at each other each term and we progress some meaningful work, but we don't feel like we're always jumping from one thing to another. Uh, and I think that sort of really human lens, that realistic lens of, yes, we want to keep getting better, but the way that we've been working isn't working for us. And funny enough, the more we keep piling on ourselves and improvement, the less we actually get sustainably done. Yeah. So I think there's sort of awakening happening around uh, perhaps some of the ideas and some of the norms around what it's like to be a school leader, what it's like to be a head teacher, what it's like to be uh, a leader in a local authority who wants to pursue the equity and excellence agenda in Scotland, but wants to pursue it in such a way that uh, will actually make a change and that uh, will ensure that the workforce isn't collateral damage on the on the process. Yeah. I get a sense there's not there's often a tension in there that comes from different places around um the need for change being quite strong and the need to do better for our children and young people, rightly so, is at the center of that. Um yeah. and sometimes there's an expectation and a pressure to deliver that change, that improvement um at pace. And I guess that's a phrase I do hear used that we need to do things at pace. Um and I think that creates that tension between how does a leader navigate that? Yes, of course, we want to make things better for our children, and young people, but also to do that, we can't necessarily do it at pace and avoid the pitfalls. Does that make sense? Well, I think we can do it at pace. We can do it at a natural pace, yeah. which is, and that's the key. What's the natural pace? And the natural pace is something where we can sustain at that level we can not just do short-term pedagogical diets, but we can actually make long-term instructional habit change. We can make the organizational routine change. What's the point of making a short-term change that reverts to default once the, the pressure comes off because there's a change in leadership at a local authority level or change in leadership in department ministerial level. Uh, we need to find a way of working at a natural pace. And I think the other piece here is just to say, there's been a lot of quality leaders who've cared about the things that we care about right now in Scotland, who've really tried to do things quickly, who've tried to heed the moral imperative and respond to that by going at an unnatural pace. And well, the leaders who are still here, they're working on the same problems. So I think it's worth uh, thinking seriously about doing less, uh, focusing in on the most important things, and then taking a trajectory of more like two, three, or four years to do them well, then um, as Vivian Robinson says, we have to unlearn the quick fix. And I think if people's desire to make an impact results in another round of quick fixes, then they leave their schools, they leave their local authorities, they leave their regions in a place that other leaders are gonna come in and have to begin the work again, just with a more overloaded, more exhausted and change fatigue workforce. Yeah. And when you visited Scotland, what sense did you get um, of where we are with that? Hmm. <laughs> well, number one, it was so lovely to be there. Um, I'm, I'm somewhere between a quarter and a half Scottish, so it was lovely to <laughs> re-engage with my roots and my great, great, 
great grandfather, I think, was born just outside of um, Edinburgh in Fife. And um, yeah, it was lovely to kind of just be there. I've been to Scotland before when I lived in England for five years doing my postgraduate work and other things, but uh, it was lovely to return um, and really engage. You know, my first day, I just wandered Glasgow and enjoyed myself. Uh, getting to know that wonderful and vibrant city. Uh, and then my first day of work was just straight into school visits. Um, got picked up uh, by a wonderful uh, leader in Glasgow who's doing some of the student achievement work. And Callum took me straight into Clyde Primary School. We had a great visit there and seen the terrific work happening and some of my work in teaching sprints being embedded there by the leaders. And I headed across to Drum Chapel High School and uh, got to meet with senior leaders there and understand the complexity of what they're working through. And I say this because whilst as a policy person, a researcher, I can give you some uh, global perspectives. I'll tell you all the richness for me came uh, embedded in conversations, talking to those leaders, uh, then following through in, in some of the sessions we ran um, where sure I was sharing ideas, but very much sitting at tables, listening to what's occurring. So where do I think you are? Well, I think you've got a wonderful platform. I describe the platform in Scotland as a really strong around the moral imperative, particularly around obviously language of equity and excellence. You can't uh, move more than a couple of meters in education in Scotland without <laughs> someone mentioning equity and excellence. I was a little bit worried I wasn't be allowed to leave the country without my equity and excellence tattoo. And I love it, it's, it's there. I would say you then have a really strong set of collaborative structures, uh, whether it be uh, the work of how schools are interacting together, uh, the RICs, obviously the regional improvement collaboratives, the work of regions, it's still really strong. And you are a geographically small place, um, at least in comparison to New South Wales, where I'm from, which we're the size of uh, Western Europe. Um, and so I think the relational capital is strong. You know, I see people like Gillian Hamilton, you know, terrific leader that I've known since her work at Skell, and she knows her people. And so the distance between a head teacher and the leader of a system is is quite, it's quite um, small, actually. So all of that is in a really, really good place. My very short visit and lots and lots of conversations led me to probably think around three things, Sarah. I, I think... The next stage for me, um, if you wanted to take that platform and really make progress on equity and excellence, uh, harness that collaboration would be mostly about precision. It would be really to say, we've got to get really precise about our understanding of the definition of the problems to be solved. Why haven't our collaborative structures and our you know, real belief in the profession and the work we're doing, why hasn't that necessarily uh, resulted in some of the changes. Okay, so it's not a lack of belief or vision or effort. We need to get to a new level of precision in the problem or challenge definition, particularly at the school level factors. And then we have to start asking, what is the evidence base suggest would be the best bets to be able to make real progress on those things? So I'd say precision, that there's a lot of low hanging fruit in the precision of problem definition and whilst there is a lot of conversations about the use of research and evidence, I believe that there is further to go in being able to say, yeah, but what is the evidence that would that uh, is likely to help us solve the highly specified problem that we've got here? Mm -hmm. 
So I reckon specificity uh, and precision is number one. I think number two, alignment. For a small system, you've got a lot of people in the middle. Mm-hmm. You've got local authorities, you've got regional improvement collaboratives, you have people in regions, you've got wonderful folks from Education Scotland, you've got those on the achievement challenges. And it took me a little bit of time to get my head around, who do you work for and how do you do this? And you're coming in from the local authority here, but you're coming in as one of the national achievement kind of leaders here. And uh, I think there's a real opportunity for alignment that even though everyone has that real moral imperative, people are still working a little bit at split purposes. So I note where schools are leading great professional learning and networking together, often Rick's really well-intentioned, but are trying to get people to really lean in and do that work. So they might be offering something else and trying to attract people over here. Maybe other people working on national agenda around achievement might be coming in. And I think through the lens of a head teacher, there's that real sense of, um, I know we're all on about the same thing, but we've been pulled in different places. Yeah. So the second big takeaway for me was alignment and coherence making in the in the middle, uh, that, that messy middle in all systems. But particularly in Scotland, I think there's an opportunity for real alignment for anyone outside of a school to make sure we're lining up, uh, you know, local authority, region, national people working in that way. And then the last one would be sustainability, <laughs> which comes back to your first question. Uh, the, you know, precision, alignment, sustainability. And that is, I would really encourage moving into the next five years of reform to do it in such a way that um, can be sustained and that is not key person dependent. And that often means, I think, moving towards putting a real focus on organisational rhythms and routines, um, finding ways to reduce individual teacher workload by uh, really teaming up in new and different ways, uh, you know, in development of high quality curriculum materials and resources. Uh, We need to find ways to uh, work in different ways to make it sustainable. So there's some of the things, a great platform. Uh, uh, I would definitely say precision and problem definition and the use of evidence. There's further and low hanging fruit there alignment and coherence, particularly around how people who are trying to support schools work together in a coherent way uh, that doesn't interrupt schools, but there's one core agenda around that capacity building. And then I think rethinking sustainability, you can't get to further improvement just by working harder. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think there's always, you know, we speak to various people and there's a common thread that comes through, which is we have a really good platform and foundation for doing great things in Scotland we just need to do the great things as well (laughs) um so yeah I think there's there's always that sense that we've got a lot of the right things sometimes it's just making them work in the right way together to actually deliver those great outcomes yeah I think so and let's be clear you know um final outcomes in terms of learner outcomes, uh, the sorts of things we might particularly track in literacy and numeracy and secondary graduation. Um, we have some serious headwinds that we're working against in, in broader challenges within uh, families and society. Uh, so we're actually going to have to work with more precision and alignment just to stay where we are. And then we're going to have to work out um how do we actually, you know, really get to that precision of, you know, if you actually want to solve for seven and eight-year-olds reading, do we really have an opinion in Scotland about what the evidence suggests is the best way to do that? 
we actually wanted people to be higher order mathematical problem solvers? Do we have an opinion about how you get to automaticity on big ideas and numeracy and then how you build fluency across a range of strategies? Or uh, to be honest, there's a tendency in Scotland to always want to jump into the deep end of the pool mm. as though learners can go straight to applied work, interdisciplinary work, straight into voice and agency, knowing the next steps in learning. Yeah. And one of my reflections is, we speak a lot in Scotland about impacts of poverty, impacts of some of those challenges. But then in the conversations, I feel as though sometimes we jump over the evidence base about what that means, about the level of vocabulary development around the, the need for really key, routine, explicit support for those students about what we know about early years literacy development around oral language, phonemic awareness, phonological awareness. Like we have a precise research base and support and I think there is still a tendency to elevate the conversation to the conceptual, to the moral imperative, to use words like equity and close the gap, but actually as practitioners, yeah, of course, it's policy talk. What are the mechanisms by which we can close the gap? And what is the best available evidence? And how close are our current practices to that best available evidence? And I would really suggest that there's a lot of knowledge that our field has that's grounded and it's not new research, you know, 20, 30 year old grounded research around what we could do that is still probably only um, uh, inconsistently applied. Uh, and if you're really serious about changing long-term disadvantaged trajectories, then we know a lot about what you need to do with four, five, six and seven year olds. Yeah. Then we know a lot about what you need to do from there. And I just think um, there is an opportunity to apply uh, their, their evidence based on human development, on learning, on literacy development, and really build that knowledge and then say closing the gap will be mostly about closing a practice gap between what we already know works and how we see that turning up consistently across Scottish classrooms. Yeah. I wonder if that kind of connects with what you were saying before about um, kind of doing less well. I wonder if sometimes we do use the conceptual stuff and we stay at the big ideas or the, the the principles because we can hold more of those things we don't um what we're trying to do is kind of hold all the things in our head or hold all the things in our plans rather than actually letting some of that go and actually drilling down into the specifics and the detail and the integrity of fewer principles yeah i think that's really well put sarah and let's just sort of play it through Interestingly enough, if you want to change the most things for the most number of people, you have to change by, you have to make that change by going resolutely around a small number of things for probably a subgroup of the population. And so what it means is you might look at each other and say, oral language development, phonemic development, so phonological awareness, phonemic awareness for our uh, three, four and five-year-olds matters, the foundation of our, of our literacy. So what would it look like to really put a circle around what Lisa Rogers, who's now the Secretary in, um, of Education in Western Australia, but was a terrific senior leader in New Zealand when I first met her. And she taught me this phrase they had in New Zealand, which was, we need to know the numbers, names and needs. And that is Scotland's small enough to know the numbers, names and needs of every four, five or six year old who who isn't yet on trajectory, not for some test, but in their own human development, particularly in you know the English language, this, this crazy language that we have, um, 
that is quite difficult to learn in comparison to others. And we can know the numbers, names and needs of kids who are not yet building that understanding because we can know that then they're going to find it very, very hard in their phonic knowledge and fluency. It's highly predictive of their efficacy and identity as readers. I'm not talking about standardized test scores and reading. I'm talking about, are you going to release and unleash people who can read for pleasure, which is my benchmark. Can you have a seven or eight year old or nine year old sitting on a couch or in a car in Scotland and reading for pleasure? And I can predict that pretty well as a researcher for the five and six year old based on their phonemic and phonological awareness, unless we're tracking and thinking. So I'd also say in Scotland, there's this, it's this strange tension that we're all facing, which is if you really care about equity and excellence, how could you ever go after a small set of problems with a smaller set of the population? Mm -hmm. Or you might say, you know, if we really care about equity and excellence, how can we just limit the conversation to early years literacy development? Or how can we limit the conversation towards some of the big ideas in number? Or how can we limit the conversation towards really developing um, uh, efficacy and confidence in senior writing? And because it feels like there's a trade-off <laughs> between caring about all and doing some. And I don't think we've matured in our application yet as a profession, as a sector. Uh, I think medicine understands that, you know, if you're running a research in institute in Scotland and you want to make the biggest impact possible in the lives and vitality of Scottish citizens, you don't do that by saying we want to close the gap. So we're going to allocate our hundred million dollars and we're going to give a million dollars to a hundred different issues. And of those million dollars, each of those will be divided out equally against the population. And so in the end, a whole bunch of scientists are holding $40,000 saying, what can we do with this? Mm -hmm. And we can put off on our medical Institute. We care about everyone. And can you see how we care about everyone? We allocated it to everyone. That's just not how you solve complex problems. You've got to make hard trade-offs to say, my values is I care for all. My values is I care about these things. And we think we can solve this problem in this subpopulation and make a real difference. And so we choose to disproportionately deploy our resources and knowledge in this area to solve that issue. And then we can move to the next issue. And that's a really different pragmatic way of living out closing the gap, which is what's an area in Scotland you know you've got that you've got a really good evidence-informed answer to and that your terrific profession could pick up and apply with consistency over the next few years. Um, I find there is no willingness at the moment in Scotland to have the debate, for example, about what is the best way to teach four to nine-year-olds to read in the English language. No one wants to have that actual, yeah. is there an answer or is there a better answer at the moment in the evidence? And the evidence will change over time, but is there a better evidence answer or what are the best ways to help? And I'm using these um, early years examples in primary because we know in the evidence, if you don't solve it, then you cannot solve it later on. Yeah. Right. You cannot solve it later on. You can't expect seven, you're at seven, eight, nine teachers to be doing pull out intervention around reading at a grade three level and be teaching the content. It just creates unbelievable challenges. So yeah, I just kind of am um, being a bit provocative here, but I just think you can't be serious about closing the gap unless you define the problems to be solved. And once you solve the problems, if you are someone who says you care about evidence, which is just what are the best bets we think we have? Yeah. Uh, I'm not talking about prescribed teaching. I'm talking about 
strategies and approaches that can be adaptively um, uh, adjusted to context, uh, I don't think you'll close a gap unless you actually have an upfront conversation about whether or not you think there is a, a more effective way of securing those kind of foundational pathways to learning for every every one of your young people and particularly those that you care about most in your discourse which is those that are most impacted by socioeconomic disadvantage what you're what you're saying there's um reminding me of the conversation we had um a while back with Vivian Robinson around her reduced change to increase improvement and her engage and bypass model and that idea of really deeply understanding the challenge the problem the issue and spending time exploring what that theory of action is so that you are going with the best bet. Um, but also, as you say, being, being able to come back and review the, the impact of that and change your theory if that one wasn't working, if, if you needed something else. Yeah, and that's the scientific method at play. You know, anyone who thinks, oh, Simon's saying we should prescribe to teachers what they should do. And it's got, no, no, no. We should yeah. be evidence-informed pragmatists who first don't just give lip service to evidence, but say maybe there is you know, really strong findings here around the highest likelihood about how to support the students that we say we care about most. Well, let's then, as Vivian would say, go and understand what are the prevailing beliefs um, that are sustaining the current approach. Let's not do any quick fixes. Let's come to understand the school level causes of the challenges that we face, not at the system level. You need the schools to do that problem analysis. And then the system or the local authority or the RICS, I think, should be enablers of saying, well, as we, as you at the school level have really come to a rigorous understanding of the school level challenges you want to solve, we can be partners with you in surfacing the best available evidence, examples and tools, which then you're going to have to go on an adaptive journey to work out how to make it work in your context. Yeah, yeah. You talked there about the, the third element being that idea of sustainability, which, of course, takes us back to, you know, the, that that episode that has been so popular. Um, and I suppose I want to weave into something I know you've been exploring and sharing as well around the pruning principle, um, because I guess our tendency is often to layer things on, to add more, to, to create more things that we need to do. Um, how does the pruning principle, because we've come to love you and know you for giving us really tangible, practical ways of doing this stuff and making it kind of embodying, I guess, the principle. So how does the pruning principle help us in that space? Uh, well, thanks for, for raising it. This is a new area of research and development for me, and it really comes from realising that we're in what I'm calling the additive trap in educational change, mm -hmm. where the default for head teachers, for uh, local authority leaders, in RICs, in regions, nationally. So if we haven't closed the gap, or if we really care about making a difference, the default is we must add something in addition. Mm -hmm. And so there's a default to say, well, what we're currently doing isn't, isn't sufficient. And so somehow, if we care, we'll do something additional. And you see this in all sorts of ways. We think about the funniest example. I see where people say, oh, we've got to really care about teacher well-being. I say, yeah, I agree. And then they say, so we're having teacher well-being week. So what we're doing is we're adding a breakfast. So all the teachers have got to come in at 7.30 on a Tuesday for the well-being week. And tomorrow we expect them at 8 o'clock for Pilates because we really care. Now, <laughs> that's a kind of jovial answer. But I see it turn up all around the world. 
Yeah. We care about a problem. What do we do about the problem? We've got to we've got to do something. We've got to add something. So it's this tendency towards additive thinking. And what happens over time, you get these sedimentary layers building up and building up and building up. And what's really strange is people somehow fall into the trap that this next little thing, this next thing is all that was missing to move across. So you know, you'll see this in policy where people say, oh, what we're going to do is we're going to provide um, uh, one day a week instructional coach for every school uh, in mathematics. So, oh, great. Love this. Okay. So all of our Scottish teachers, for example, are already teaching mathematics. We all agree on that. Yep. We've already got these resources. We've got this assessment and uh, this is all happening every week and they, they're talking about it around the data and their PLCs or their teams. And then what would make you think that the one day a week person coming inside who doesn't you know, necessarily have a coffee cup in that comment, like tell me the theory about why that's the final thing that's going to take us into the next level of impact. And I'm, I'm not saying at all that instructional coaching and addition of that wouldn't be an evidence-informed approach, but this idea of we'll just add that and then we'll just add that and then we'll just add that. And no one stops to say, well, what about all the things we're already doing? Why aren't we already achieving what we hope through that? And what would make us think about this? So we get into this additive trap at all different levels. And I've been trying to work out what do we do about it? Because COVID gave us a pause, but no one did any pruning. Mm. So what happened is what we're now experiencing is everything that we used to have to do back. Mm -hmm plus a whole bunch of other things due, due to some of the growing complexity of the challenges we face in this kind of post-crisis. I won't say post-COVID because obviously it's still very much with us, but um, in this post-crisis period. And then people are saying, we really, really care. We've got to close the gap. We got, the gap's got you know, larger, so we need to do more and more. So I've been trying to think about what do we do? And so number one, I just want to say that um, we can't carry on at this rate and that we're going to end up like a computer that has too many apps on it, too many tabs open, but we can't risk turning it off because we're not really, you know, we don't really trust that the, the, the shutdown is going to result in everything else reloading again. And I talked to school leaders about this and they would say, yeah, yeah, my computer's like that. I'm just hoping it, I can't afford to turn it off yet. And I feel like that's how our schools and our, and our regions are at the moment. So I've been trying to work out what is a really positive frame a conceptual frame and a set of tools we could use, Sarah, that could help us engage in the work of pairing back. And we all know that we want less, like we all know that we want a state of calm, but we don't actually often have processes that we can do collectively to get us to that state of less or calm. And so for me, the notion of pruning has emerged as a really uh, helpful frame because pruning is a natural process that we engage in within living organisms and, and ecosystems, I should say. And we do it in this artful kind of combination of subtraction and preservation. We don't do it because, oh, this just, just totally failed. We don't do it because we've run out of funding. No, we prune because we need to redirect limited resources and energy to the most profitable bits. We often prune things that are themselves going well. And this is important. Yeah. You need to prune things that are going well to re-stimulate growth and rejuvenation. And sometimes you just need to prune to kind of fit out, open up a bit more airflow and get greater coherence. And so, Sarah, I found this a, a, a concept that's just resonated really, really quickly in all the networks and the, mm -hmm. the partners that we have as a team. Because people are saying, you know what? This is a term we enjoy using. 
hey, we need to engage in prune. So we talk about we need pruning season before planning season. Mm-hmm. And every school improvement plan should start with a box of the things that we're going to stop doing yeah, uh, or cut back or refine. And that some of the strategies in your school improvement should be subtractive strategies. Why do we always think the school improvement plan should only have additional strategies? Mm-hmm. It's also something that we can do collectively uh, where we're trying to bring things back under capacity. And we do this um, sometimes because subtraction is a good answer of itself. So we might say, if we were to improve attendance or improve mathematics or improve behavior, how could we do that only through subtractive answers? Mm-hmm. Sometimes teams just, what are you talking about? And then they wait and they start to generate. Well, we could do this, we could do this. And that would reduce the pressure on this. That could be interesting. Or we say the new order of, order of operations in school improvement is subtraction before addition. And that idea of any time you say, we've just got to do this. Okay, where are we going to find that margin? Where are we going to find that bandwidth? We must be willing to cut back. I love that idea of embedding it in the improvement planning process or your improvement plan document even so that as you say it becomes a way of doing and a way of being um because it is really easy to just keep adding in that's what the improvement plans usually are so to have that clearly stated i guess it builds as you say that kind of rhythm and building the processes that enable you to to do that as part of your as part of your work that's well said. And I'd say, well, why don't we prune? Part of it is we just haven't had a language that really resonates. Um, secondly, we don't have rhythms and seasons for it. Yeah. So if I say to people, when's planning season? They go, oh, yeah, it's this. Or when's school review season? Oh, it happens only every three years. And it happens around, oh, okay. When is pruning? Oh, oh, what? So they don't have a concept that resonates that they can use with each other. Secondly, they don't have a, a seasonal rhythm about when we do it. Yeah. Thirdly, they don't have a set of tools. So when we go about pruning, how do we do that? How do we examine, look at the tree, look at the orchard and say, where are things at? What's creating impact? What isn't? Then how do we prioritize? And then how do we actually make the cut? And then how do we um, unify the bits that are left and then step away and, and nurture? What often happens after pruning is people just fill the space straight away. <laughs> so no, 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 you prune now, let it, let it come back. Uh, nurture what's there uh, and allow it to, to, to grow in a more natural way. So I'm exploring with this idea and it's definitely resonating. I do think there should be pruning at least a month out from planning uh, or it should be the first phase of planning. I think there needs to be a box at the front end about things that will be paused, taken away um, uh, in order to create space to do the new work. I think some strategies themselves should just be subtractive strategies. Uh, we think we can make this outcome better by taking away this. And then um, bit by bit, normalize it. So we don't have to do a one-off big prune that's kind of heartbreaking and we want to play, you know, some sad music in the background. It's like, oh no, this is just something we're always doing. Yes. Every couple of terms, pruning back, and this is part of our work as leaders in uh, organic ecosystems. Yeah, and I think there's, I'm hearing sort of two elements. There's the subtraction and also the pruning as well. And I guess sometimes what happens is we fall into the language of what do we need to stop doing? But actually just stopping something is too 
it's too hard, it's too big, it's too much. Whereas perhaps this idea of pruning allows us to either do that gradually over time or to shape it in different ways. And maybe it doesn't need to be stopped altogether, but actually we can yeah, prune in order to allow it to grow in a slightly different way. And I, look, you know, I'd be an advocate of sort of Jim Collins's what's your stop doing list. And I definitely think at the individual pruning level, that can be useful. You look at your own, we do this and we look at our own, you know, workflow calendars over the last two months. And we think about lower impact and lower leverage work and what we might need to prune. But again, even telling people what meetings can we get rid of is hard. But if I say, could we prune meetings by 25% in length? Most people go, oh, am I allowed to? Yeah, so let's take all the one-hour meetings. Let's make them 45 minutes. And then everyone's got 15-minute processing time between, oh, okay. So that's a much easier yes to people. Or if we sort of said, look, do we need to dump this whole professional learning approach? No, but could we prune it back? Like, we really getting three hours of benefit that. What would it look like if we did it in a one hour? What would it look like if we took the six questions and made them four questions? What would it look like if, and we're just exploring and exploring and thinking. And I, I do think, as you're saying, it's a matter of degree of the extent to which you prune, yeah. whether, you know, are the language and, you know, there's been a lot of language brought across in implementation science about de-implementation and, and, you know, I myself am steeped in that literature and, and, and I'm really interested what I find, though, it's a process that's a little colder, a little bit more sterile, and it's normally deployed on things that really need to go. You know, this we need to this reporting process just isn't working. Yeah. Or, you know, this approach to, to early years literacy is not based on the evidence and it needs to go. And we need to systematically do that. But it's not something you sort of want to um, speak of the group of teachers, hey, what are we going to do this? What are we going to, and I found the language of pruning and because human uh, teachers are so uh, connected to organic metaphors, yeah. um, they really love the notion and they're more than happy. And sometimes they want to take out the chainsaw, sure. And they want to cut mm -hmm. off the dead, the damage and the problematic. Other times they take out the loppers and they want to take off a few branches. And sometimes they've just got the sick of tears and they're just making some adjustments and it's an empowerment around, okay, let's just pull it back. Let's just pull it back. Know that growth will keep happening. Uh, and I think it's a process that can happen at all levels. Mm. Do you notice anything around areas in which we're more willing to prune and less willing to prune? So I'm thinking that maybe... Um, if it's something we've come up with or we feel we have a sense of ownership of, we might feel more reluctant to prune than if we feel it's imposed by others. That's like the first thing top of the list. We could subtract that easy enough, but I'll just take a tiny bit off here because I like that thing. Do you get any sense of that coming through? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think everyone listening can sort of play that human logic out. Um, I think uh, early on, it's always easier to prune closer to you in the sense of, I, I normally say um, prune originally in your own tasks and responsibilities in your own calendar, uh, in your own meetings. Everyone's happy to prune meetings, by the way, Sarah. <laughs> They're always, they love that idea. Yeah. And then as you move to other bits, I think you, you, you put an insight here. So when we're talking about projects, they're often willing to uh, aren't wary of pruning something they've put a lot of effort in. And here's where they fall for what we all do as humans, the sunk cost fallacy, which is this idea, well, I've already spent this much time and this much public money and this, you know, this professional time on this work. It's not really working. I actually, you know, I really think it needs to be cut back or it needs to be removed, but 
well, look, I've already put this much time into it. So I should just put a little bit more in. So we've got to be aware of some of those cognitive heuristics. So I definitely think that um, that sunk cost fallacy where we feel a bit guilty or a bit bad for using, you know, budget and time and energy. And we feel like, well, I've already put this much of my own time into it. I'll just keep going. We have to be aware of that. And I can say, no, no, you spent that money and that time to learn that this isn't a good fit for your school or your role. Yeah. So um, thank you so much for doing what you were saying before, that experiment, that learning. Uh, now look at the evidence and make an adjustment. And your job is to follow the evidence and to adjust, uh, not to blindly just keep going. So sometimes it's about that. Uh, sometimes it's we're not very good at looking for evidence and we fall for confirmation bias where we look for evidence that confirms what we really wish to be true. Yeah. Or we fall for an anecdotal fallacy where people tell a story about how good it is in the year seven classroom and this teacher is amazing and somehow try to generalize from that one case towards um, some sort of justification of the whole school-wide program. And so there are cognitive errors that we make for ourselves. Yeah. I think at other times we're wary in long-term teams to suggest pruning someone else's work. You know, if you're working with me, Sarah, you might think, well, that's Simon's baby, that thing, and he's put a lot of effort in. And so yeah. this is why I think we need to depersonalize it somewhat by having regular rhythms, mm -hmm. clear tools, ways of gathering evidence and thinking about it, and then having broad and open, transparent conversations about it. And of course, you don't start off when you're learning how to prune going after, I think that person should stop <laughs> this. Start with self, move to team, move to reflection on self, leaders reflecting on some of the, tr the trimming and pruning they're doing in their own work, and then trying to model that and then create the safety that as Viviane would say, you mentioned, she talks about perseverance in hard work, but it's perseverance around the goal, not sticking to the strategy. And so one of the reasons we prune is that we've got this real sense of the perseverance around the goal, but we're not wedded to the, our original strategy. And so we're not necessarily pruning because we're giving up on the goal for young people. We're just suggesting either um, this strategy is ineffective and it's going to go, or it's been quite effective, but it's sort of getting a bit wooded. And the STEM, it's not, you know, we've, we've been doing PLCs this way for quite a while. Yeah. We're, mm -hmm. we're getting less yield. And so we actually need to cut it back because it's going well. So it keeps going well. That's another really lovely thing about pruning that it doesn't fit other sort of de-implementation framing. I think pruning just gives a sense that we wouldn't de-implement something going well, but you would definitely have to prune something that's bearing fruit. Yes. And that gives a broader set of categories that we prune good things to ensure that we sustain the yield, the quality of the fruit or the flowers or however you want to play out the metaphor. And that's a nice thing as well, I think, Sarah, to actually get people to practice pruning on things that are going well to stimulate more growth. And yeah. then over time, bring them across to things that are dead, damaged, disease or problematic. Yeah. I, I get a real sense in the difference between that the language of, around the research of de-implementation and what you're describing of pruning. The thing that feels different to me is <clears throat> that it comes with it. It brings energy with it. That's the sense that I get that that pruning is a real energizer and it's creating energy within the system or within the individual as well, which maybe the language of de-implementation doesn't convey in the same way. Yeah, and please, you know, I'm I'm grateful to to colleagues who are brought that across from the implementation science literature. Well, I, I hear it a lot now in the work that we do on pruning where people are saying, oh, this is like the implementation. We do a bit of that. We like that work. And I think that's been a really important piece. I suppose um, I'm, I'm always, uh, you were kind before about, I'm always looking for simple things that cut through with the majority. 
that people use back and that they can understand in five minutes and start using next week. Yeah. And I found that people's initial response to concepts that I've taught around de-implementation were like, oh, that's that's provocative. Yeah, we need to de something. But then it also often tended towards things of admitting that something really didn't work and it's got to go. And so, but if I, or we've got to de-implement because we're kind of out of resources or funding. But pruning isn't about touching the underlying resources. We're not talking about removing water or nutrients in the soil or sunlight. We're saying, as you say, like if we want to redirect that energy around the most fruitful thing, if we want to keep re-stimulating and regrowing, then we're going to be long-term organizations that we must constantly prune, not, not as a sake of, of failure necessarily, not as a sake of like admitting we got something wrong, but in the pursuit of long-term structural integrity, in the pursuit of long-term vitality, we have to do this artful um dance between preservation and subtraction and if you think scottish schools are still going to be scottish schools in 2030 and 2040 and 2050 then clearly pruning is something that's going to be crucial to their ongoing longevity and their ongoing structural integrity like if you let things overgrow and grow in problematic ways they will collapse under their own weight and i think that's a danger for some scottish schools yeah very official as well when you talk about it we can all imagine <laughs> the idea yeah. of seasons because we're very used to those in Scotland we get all four in one day quite often so we, we understand seasons in that sense so I think yes it gives us something very tangible to to kind of um play around with and connect with and look great thinker you know, I'm, not, I'm not the first person to think about the no. need to remove my small contribution here is say but how do we make it something that that we look forward to that, that you say that brings energy that focuses on the things we want more in the future rather than the things that we have to sadly take away yeah. and i think if you get that language right and the energy right and then you can imagine sarah you know a head teacher says hey you know we're coming up to the the post christmas season new year pruning and this is a very light prune at this time of year uh, but we're just tuning in with each other four or five months in. And this week, only subtractive answers. Uh, we're doing a pruning jam. We've got a pruning wall. I would say be careful if you're a new um, uh, strong-minded principal head teacher coming into a place. They might put you on the wall. So uh, be careful how democratic you make this too early on. Um, but that idea of, hey, it's pruning season. It's pruning week. You know the week. Uh, no additional answers, please, that are not subtractive. People love that. Oh, it's pruning week. Yeah. Only subtractive answers. Cool. And then maybe as you head off into April or May, there's a really deep prune where you say, as we prepare for thinking about our next school improvement planning process, end of May, early June, as we're thinking about that, and then we'll break for the summer and come back. We really want to do a much deeper prune, a real analysis of the data. And we do that pruning before we do our planning. And people, people, I think, will really love that seasonality. Oh, subtractive time. Um, can you imagine if right at the, the heart of, you know, Scottish education or RICS or um, uh, local authorities, everyone's saying, hey, just so you know, everyone, we're in pruning week. Uh, we're really open to feedback and thoughts here. Uh, remember, our priority goals are these, and we're going to, in Vivian's language, we're going to persevere with, inter with personal courage here in the pursuit of those. But in the pursuit of those goals, we're open to some pruning of some of our strategies. So um, let's talk. And it's just, you know, it's an empowerment. Yeah. Oh, that's another word you always talk about. Hey, you know. <laughs> it is another word we always like. 
pruning would be very empowering, um, particularly if it's not pruning of the aspiration or, or the dropping of any goals for our young people and system. It's, it's, it's much more being willing to prune in the strategic area, the strategies, the layers, the residual, the kind of um, layer upon layer of sometimes redundancy you have in Scottish education of great people doing similar things and bumping into each other, making it more confusing for schools to know what the priority is. There would be opportunities to prune and align. Yeah, yeah. Simon, thank you once again for um, an energising and stimulating conversation. Great to be able to dig into some of your reflections and experiences of being in Scotland and what you learned while you were you were here but also to explore that idea of pruning principle and how I think that can interact with that idea of sustainability so as ever hugely grateful to you um, for your time one last question do you have a question or something you would encourage listeners to go away and really think about well given our conversation in the back half here Sarah I would say the question I would ask in anything you're grappling with, what if the answer is less? The answer is less. Brilliant question. Less. Just sit with that. What if the answer is less? And you just work it through, whatever. And you're like, it can't be. No, no, I really care. What if the answer is less? And you start to work it through your own workload and burnout challenges. You work it through in... Um, um, uh, the, the dynamics you're having with your team, you work it through with your overload in your school improvement. You work it through with how many times people in the RIC are getting together and you're getting lower attendance rates. I don't know, whatever it is, just what if the answer is less? And wouldn't it be worth trying that for a couple of months and to see what happens? Yeah. Simon, thank you. We hugely value your time and the ability to have these conversations with you. So thank you once again. My pleasure. Thanks for the friendship uh, across uh, long distances. And I must say, uh, I am but a visitor, uh, sometimes digitally and uh, for a little while for a try of Haggist and a visit in a couple of schools and conversations with, with, with leaders. But I really only sampled a very small part of Scottish education and sampled and had conversations with brilliant people from across the, the, the country. But again, just a sample. And so I always say, you know, when I visit, I, I probably get a whole range of things wrong. Um, but sometimes hearing an outsider, uh, whether they put their finger on something that uh, only an outsider would probably be allowed to say, um, or whether they say something that really doesn't resonate and you know why it's wrong, um, hopefully uh, sometimes the outside visitor helps you see a new, uh, yeah. your own system. And uh, if some of my reflections have done that today, uh, I'll, I'll be um, happy about that. Uh, but I also acknowledge uh, I've probably got all sorts of things wrong and uh, be happy to be told so and come for another visit and learn more. Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it and found it useful. If you enjoy listening, you can support us by following on your preferred platform, sharing on social media or leave us a review. Thanks again.